Before we get to our scripture text this evening, we'll be reading from our confessions from Lord's Day 12. From Lord's Day 12. And you can find that in the, in the book of Forms and Prayers on page 213. That's page 213 in your book of Forms and Prayers. And in Lord's Day 12, we're asked, first of all, this question, a question whose answer we sang about in our our first song of praise, number 377, that song of praise to Christ, the name above all names. Why is He called Christ, meaning anointed? Because He has been ordained by God the Father. That means He's been selected and appointed appointed by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance, our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance He has won for us. And then if you turn the page, question and answer 32. But why are you called a Christian? Because by faith, I am a member of Christ. That is, I am united to Christ, and so I share in His anointing. I am anointed to confess His name, to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. And I will turn in God's Word to the book of Acts as we continue our series on the the Holy Spirit, who He is, where He comes from, and what He's doing, our focus is going to be Acts 2, verses 14 through 21, but we'll start again at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, 
Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood." Before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thanks be to God for His Word. Now it had been ten days, it had been ten days since their Lord had left them ascending into heaven to take His rightful place at the right hand of the Father. The the disciples were, were gathered together, the entirety of the church, all 120 of them, all in one place, waiting. Waiting for the Holy Spirit. Because Christ, just before He had gone up, He had promised that before long He was going to send the Holy Spirit to baptize them, ushering in a new era the era of the New Testament church, and so they waited in Jerusalem just as He had told them to do. And it was, as Peter says, it was about nine o'clock on a Sunday morning when Jesus' promise to them was fulfilled. They were all together, all 120 of them, when suddenly the building where they were gathered was filled with the sound of a rushing wind from heaven, and divided tongues like tongues of fire split and rested on each one of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and suddenly began to speak in other languages the mighty works of God, as the Spirit empowered them to do so. But the 120 disciples, as we read, were not the only people gathered in Jerusalem that day. It was the Jewish festival of Pentecost, the the, the festival during which the entire nation of Israel gathered in the city of Jerusalem to thank the Lord for once again blessing them with a bountiful harvest. 
So Jewish people from all over the place, from all over the Roman Empire in the West and the Parthian Empire in the East, from all over where they'd been scattered during the exile, they were gathered in this one place to thank God for His gracious goodness, and they heard the disciples speaking as the Spirit gave them utterance, and they gathered around that place eager to find out what the hubbub was all about. And they heard the most amazing thing. Every single person gathered there in Jerusalem from Iran to Italy, all of them heard the disciples declaring the wonderful works of God in their own native languages. It was incredible. It was astounding. So you can imagine, you can imagine why they would react the way they did. They were eager to find out what was going on. And so Peter, the de facto leader of the apostles, he stands up and and dismisses the mockers. We're not drunk, Peter says. It's nine in the morning. Calm down. And he lets the crowd in on what exactly is going on. And he tells them that that, that a prophecy given some, some 500 years earlier was now being fulfilled. God's promises to his people given through his prophet Joel way back when these prophecies were now coming true. God was acting in an astonishing way to prepare his people for the next great era and the next great event in redemptive history. and, and to set this event, this day of Pentecost, in the context of all of God's plans for His people and for the glory of His great name, Peter brings them God's Word from Joel chapter 2. Most specifically, Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. And it's here in our text in verses 17 through 21. And this passage that, that Peter highlights has two sections in it. One section, the first section, verses 17 and 18, It's a dramatic demonstration, uh, well, a prophecy of of a dramatic demonstration of God's presence manifested in the anointing of His people with the pouring out of His Spirit. But the other section, it's a bit more unexpected, isn't it? Verses 19 through 21, the blood, the fire, the pillars of smoke. It couldn't be more different. It's a dramatic demonstration of the removal of God's hand of blessing. So verses 17 and 18 are are a demonstration, this is how God is going to bless His people, but verses 19 through 21, this is how God is going to remove His hand of blessing. And yet, though verses 19 and 20 and 21 could barely be darker, through that darkness shines this light, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we're going to deal with this passage in those two sections, verses 17 and 18, and then verses uh, uh, 19 through 21. So we begin with 17 and 18, and we'll go through that, that, that section systematically. First asking what's happening, then asking when's it going to happen, and then finally asking to whom will it happen. So first, what? What's going on here? What is God promising here? And this is likely where most of your questions about this text come in. See, throughout the history of God's people, post-Pentecost, that is, in, 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 the, in, in the post-Pentecost era, Christians have wondered if this promise should give us an expectation of Pentecost-like events throughout church history. And some in the church have even gone so far as to say that, this, that, 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 that these exceptional displays of God's power are, are, are normal and normative for the church. And therefore, if they're not in the church, well, then something has gone horribly wrong. If people aren't speaking in tongues, if people aren't being miraculously healed, then something has gone wrong in your church, they will say. And I'm sure sure that you've encountered that sort of idea. From Montanists in the early church, 
to some sects of, of Anabaptists during the Reformation, to Pentecostals and Charismatics today. There, there are many who would make the argument that what the apostles and their fellow believers demonstrated and what the crowds in Jerusalem saw on that Pentecost day ought to characterize the church in all ages now that the Spirit has come. And now what are we to make of this? After all, isn't this exactly what Joel promised, prophesied would happen? Shouldn't the words of the prophet, particularly as they're being used here by Peter, shouldn't they be taken as the promise of just such mighty, miraculous signs? Well, it's a fair question. And to answer that question, we really should look at the broader testimony of Scripture, first to the Old Testament, to the need for the Spirit's presence and power and work, and then secondly, at the way that God's meeting this crying need is seen in the New Testament. See, the, the, the great promise that the saints of the Old Testament looked to more than anything else was the promise of God, the covenant promise of God, I will be with you as your God. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you as your God. It's a promise that God speaks again and again and again and again and again. And from the very beginning, we see that this is exactly what God's people need. Adam and Eve's sin, the the sin that started all of the problems in this world, it was met with alienation. Right? They sinned. And God removed them from the place where He had previously most clearly demonstrated His presence to them. And so they realized there, at that moment, I need God to be my God, to be with me as my God. For people in exile from God, the greatest crying need is not for ecstatic visions or physical healings or speaking in tongues. No, the greatest crying need was for the presence of God to once again be among His people. And this need was answered in part in the, in the Old Testament community of Israel through God's provision of sanctuaries, places where He would be present in the midst of His people, first the tabernacle, then the temples, living with His people, living with them as their God. But, but because of the faithlessness of His people, just like in the Garden of Eden, God removed His presence from them. We, we have this dramatically uh, painted for us in the early chapters of Ezekiel as the glory cloud, the, the, the cloud of God's Shekinah glory is removed from the temple. And so once again, their crying need was for God to be with them as their God. Their greatest crying need was not for miraculous signs and wonders. It wasn't for bumper crops and the healing of diseases. The greatest crying need of God's people was to have Him as their God with them in their presence permanently and irrevocably. And you know, within Israel, there was this class of people who had access to this presence of God in a way that no one else did. There was a class of people in the Israelite community who were privy to the very thoughts of God. Even when God's sanctuary on earth was destroyed, these people's communion with God was unimpeded. Even when Ezekiel saw the glory cloud removed from the temple, God continued to speak to him. This fact, more than a wish for ecstatic prophecies and miraculous signs, this fact that, 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 that the prophets had, had access into God's very courtroom was what prompted Moses, upon seeing two men prophesying in the camp of Israel, to say, would that all of God's people were prophets. 
Would that all were prophets. So, so, so that's the Old Testament need that Pentecost answers. That's the crying need of God's people addressed through his prophet Joel. But what about the New Testament witness? What about the miracles and signs and wonders, particularly as we see them here in Jerusalem and then, and then, and then later on in the, in, in, the, in the church of Corinth as well? Well, as we've seen so far already in our, in our studies of Luke's gospel, those, those signs and those wonders were not something that furthered God's plans on their own. They never existed for their own sakes. They were attestations to something greater. And as we see, and we see this in Paul's epistles as well, particularly in 1 Corinthians. See, as you know, the, the, the Corinthian church seemed to be awash in miracles and, and these special gifts from the Holy Spirit, but all these gifts did nobody any good. The church lacked the clearest evidence of God's favor and the Spirit's presence. It lacked love. So while the power of the prophets was on clear display, the heart of the prophets was not. In fact, it looked an awful lot like the people in that church were as far from God as Israel, Old Testament Israel, ever had been. And so both the Old and the New Testaments bear out the fact that the most deeply felt need, and the, and the need that God is meeting here on Pentecost Day, is not the need for a new word from God, though that did come through the apostles, but the need that God answers is the need for the very presence of God. Here we see God's great ancient promise fulfilled. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be with you as your God. And that's exactly what God promises here. See, back in the Old Testament, he'd been with his people by the power of the Spirit and just dribs and drabs and trickles and drops back in the Old Testament. But here in Joel and here in the, in, in the mouth of Peter, he promises to make himself known like a rushing, roaring river. He was about, no, no, he had poured out his Spirit and when did God promise He would do this? Well, this, this is a question that's simpler to answer. It's right there in the text. In the last days, verse 17 says. Verse 18, in those days. What we have here is the dawning of a, of a new era. The dawning of a new epoch in, in history. It, it is the last Days, the last days have dawned with the coming of the Spirit. In, in, this, in this era of, of the Spirit's presence and power manifested in the church, we are now living in the last days. We are in the period between the ascension of Christ and the glorious return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. We are in those last days. This is the era during which the Spirit is poured out. So we've covered the what and the when. Now who? On whom would this promised Spirit be poured out? Well, Luke, quoting Peter, quoting Joel, says just about everyone. Male, female, young, old, free, slave. There's no category of people within the elect of God who will not have God's Spirit poured into them. And this is a stark contrast from what we see back in the Old Testament. There, where the Spirit was dripped and dropped sparingly to the prophets, and the presence of God in the, in the temple was closely guarded and cut off from the people by the priests, who were only ever males of a certain age from a certain tribe and lineage, a very restrictive class, there had been nothing like this. If one were to take on himself the privileges and duties of a priest back in the Old Testament, it was seen as a scandalous and a wicked thing. 
At the time of David, you might know, God struck down a man named Uzzah who was too careless in his presence. And you might even know that, that, that when one of the kings of Judah, a, a descendant of King David named Uzziah, tried to take on the office, the priestly office for himself, God struck him with leprosy so he wouldn't even be able to come close anymore. In the Old Testament, God's presence was closely guarded and restricted. But here we see something else entirely. The crowd on Pentecost, on whom the Spirit fell at first, were not all men. They weren't all old, they weren't all young, and they they, they certainly weren't all from the priestly tribe of Levi. And that's good news for us, isn't it? Because we look around this evening, and we see old and young. We see male and female. We see people who definitely are not members of the tribe of Levi. And yet, wherever and whenever Jesus' people meet, He is present with them by the power of His Spirit. And listen, we see here today in this auditorium and with these people no less of the presence and power of Christ by His Spirit than the apostles on on Pentecost did. Beloved, the, 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 the Spirit that was poured out on Christ, the Spirit that conceived Him, anointed Him, and filled Him without measure to carry out God's work is the very same Spirit who today fills us, brings us to life, makes Christ known for us, and even brings us into Christ's very presence as we find our life in Him by the Spirit's power. It's what I read this morning as the call to worship. You have come... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The angels are throwing a party, he says, and you are there. You are there by the power of the Spirit, and you are in the presence of Christ right now. See, Christ was not lying when he said that he'd be with us to the very end of the age, to the very end of these last days. He is with us. He's truly with us and even in us, and united to us by the power of His Spirit. And, you know, it's because of this union, because of this union with Christ, and because of this anointing with the same Spirit that anointed Christ, that we are what Lord's Day 12 calls us. We're Christians, Christians who have a prophetic duty, confessing Christ's name as the disciples on Pentecost Day did. We're Christians who have a priestly duty, offering ourselves as living sacrifices made holy by the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit. And we are Christians who are carrying out a kingly duty, waging war by the power of Christ on Christ's enemies and looking forward to the great day of Christ's final victory. So this prophecy is very much about us. We are here in the last days, united to the Christ who is, who is raised and who is ascended to the, the right hand of His Father. We are waiting for Him to come again, but we are united to Him. Whether we are male or female, whether we are old or young, whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, even whether we are slave or free, we are united to Christ and share in His anointing. So now we've looked at the what, the when, and the whom of the pouring out of the Spirit in verses 17 and 18. But what about those stranger verses, verses 19 and 20? Are these even connected to verses 17 and 18? We see the Spirit's pouring out on Pentecost Day, but where's the blood? 
I guess the Spirit came as tongues of fire, but where's the smoke? Why is the sun still shining? Why hasn't the moon turned to blood? It seems like verses 19 and verses, and, uh, verses 19 and 20 have not been fulfilled. So why does Peter quote them? Well, to answer these questions, we'll again consider the what, the when, and the who, though now we'll do all three together. And, and as we do so, just to clarify, I'll, I'll, I'll be breaking these, these, these signs and wonders that we'll be examining into the two categories that Joel gives us, heavenly wonders first, and then earthly signs second. So first there are those heavenly wonders, the sun turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood, verse 20. These are wonders that are a clear display of the work and the power of God. No human being can turn off the light of the sun or the light of the moon. They are, they are displays of God's power and of God's presence. So what does it mean when they're turned off, as verse 20 describes? Well, it means that God has, has withdrawn His blessing in some way. Matthew 5.45 tells us that God makes His Son shine on the righteous and the wicked as a display of His mercy to all mankind. In the book of Joel, uh, the, the locust clouds that Joel prophesied about were, 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 a, were a demonstration of God's judgment. And how do we know this? We know this because they were, they were so, so big and so dense and so, so huge that they actually blocked out the sun. So now, if God were to, say, shut off the sun during peak daylight hours, we would know, wouldn't we, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God's judgment was being meted out on someone, that God's mercy was being withdrawn and His judgment was being applied. But when would that take place? And to whom? Well, I think you know the answer, don't you? You see, when Jesus was dying on the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon till three, God turned off the sun. Though He makes His sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked, this righteous man, more righteous than any to ever walk the face of the earth, He was made to bear the wickedness of the whole of rebellious humanity. And for this one man, the lights were turned out. Though he had never committed any kind of crime against God or man, he died a death more horrible than anything anyone else has ever borne. See, God made this man, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin incarnate. And as a sign of the taking away of his favor and the pouring on of his judgment, God turned the sun to darkness for three hours, leaving Jesus Christ the righteous one in the dark. The day of the Lord, that great and terrible day of judgment, was, was visited upon Jesus in those hours. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, at the end of history, the wrath of God, the justice of God, was poured out on Him. But you also see why it's so necessary for that to happen, don't you? The great crying need, again, of every human heart is to be reconciled to his God, to be brought back into the presence of God. It was Adam's need. It was Israel's need. It is our greatest need. More than anything else, we needed to have God's judgment taken away. We needed to be reintroduced to the presence of God. And it's only because God's justice was poured out on Christ that the Spirit can now be poured out on us. So you see, there's a, there's a vital connection between verses 17 and 18 and verses 19 and 20. It's only because God's, God's justice was poured out on Christ that the Spirit can now be poured out on us. 
And it's only because of Christ's sacrifice that verse 21 can be true, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what about the rest of this judgment? What about the signs on the earth below? What about the blood and the fire and the, and the vapor of smoke? Well, think about it. Where is it that we see blood being shed today? Where is it that we see fire and pillars of smoke today? Well, well it, it, it's in war zones, isn't it? If you want to see blood and fire and, and vapor of smoke or pillars of smoke, you look to the cities of Ukraine that have been decimated by Russian artillery. You look to the villages in Sudan that have, uh, where, 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 where civil war has raged. Blood is spilled and buildings go up in flames. That's what's being pictured here. But we shouldn't look to today's blood and fire and vapor of smoke for the fulfillment of this prophecy. Rather, we should look much earlier in history, not to Christ, but to something else. See, judgment is not only for Christ. Peter's not suggesting some kind of universalism here, as though uh, Christ is the only person who will ever be punished in the history of the world. Everyone else gets off scot-free. No, no, just a judgment also fell on those who rejected Christ particularly on those who should have been the first to greet Him when He came and who should have been the most enthusiastic to worship Him when He rose. See, because they refused to greet Him when they came, Israel's promised Messiah promised in turn that all those in that nation who refused Him would meet a terrible judgment. And about 40 years after Jesus' death and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost in the year 70 A.D., this promised judgment arrived. Jerusalem was surrounded by Roman armies as Christ Himself had promised. The city walls were broken through, the temple was torn down, and the city's flames went up to heaven. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. See, most of the nation of the Jews had, had rejected their king when He came. Though they professed to honor God, they refused to call on the name of the Lord, as verse 21 says. They refused to call on the name of the Lord. They refused the salvation that God had given them, and they met the fate that they chose for themselves. But it's not restricted just to that one year, that one punishment of Jerusalem. The very same thing is true of every single person who refuses to know Jesus the Lord as their Savior. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, Peter says. But if you refuse His salvation one day, God's mercy and God's patience will reach their end. And you'll be left with nothing but His wrath. And your existence will be nothing but darkness with the moon and the sun's light removed from you and fire and smoke and constant dying without the release of death. It's, it's jarring to hear, I know. But were I to refrain from speaking these hard words to you, your blood would be on my hands. And so speaking in the name of Christ, I tell you, look to Christ the Savior and be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or male or female or old or young. None of these things can keep you from God. When God says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, He means it. 
You may have rejected him all your life. You may have ignored him all your life. You may have been content with a casual relationship with him all your life. But if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And God will come to you, and he will make his dwelling with you, and you will be his people, and he will be your God. You will no longer be far off, but you will be brought near. And you will be a child of the Most High God. So why would you wait? Why would you wait? Because you see the judgment, don't you? You see the judgment that awaits every single person that does not call on the name of the Lord. It's a terrifying prospect. It's a terrifying prospect to think that that judgment that was meted out on Christ could be meted out on us. But that is what awaits everyone who does not do what verse 21 says. That is the judgment, the just judgment, I might add, that will fall on everyone who does not call upon the name of the Lord and so be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is honest and always tells us exactly what we need to hear. We thank You that in Your Word You have promised us that for all who take hold of Christ, all who believe in Christ, all who follow Christ, You will pour Your Spirit on them. You will not show your favor lightly, but you will show your, fla- your, your, your favor in, in, in floods and torrents and rivers. You will not drip your Spirit on us cheaply, but you will send your Spirit to fill our hearts. And so, Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit this evening that all those who do not yet name Jesus as Lord would be convicted by that convicting Spirit, would be convinced that they stand condemned if they do not take hold of Christ. Father, we pray also for those whom we love, who are not here this morning, who have turned their backs on You, who have rejected Your Son, Jesus, And we pray that you will send your Spirit into their hearts as well so that they will not face this condemnation but that they may call on Christ's name and and be saved. Our Father, may this judgment that Peter preached about and Joel prophesied May this judgment spur us on in our efforts to save those, to save those who are wrapped up in this crooked generation. Use us, we pray, use us to bring them to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, let's, let's sing now in response to God's Word from number 391, Spirit of God, dwell Thou within my heart. I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the, ta- of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies, but take the dimness of my soul.